According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one final time in uh, Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, I believe it would be pretty simple to finish the chapter today since we're in verse 33 and there is no verse 34. So here we go. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so we have a, really, I think a very profound verse uh, that centers on um, luck, that centers on random events, things that just happen. And uh, when we talk about chance and probabilities and, and things of that nature, um, are, we, are we just slaves? Are we slaves to circumstances? Uh, are we just drifting through life? Uh, and really, on the atheistic view, we are. The fact that there is a universe and the fact that, that uh, creatures evolved and whatever, it's all just one big cosmic joke, uh, if, if, if that's true. And uh, thankfully, the scriptures make clear that that's not true, that uh, it's not nothing's by chance when you factor in the plan of God from Alpha to Omega, that he controls everything, even every flip of, of a coin. So that's, uh, that's a joy. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father for his blessing upon our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of the Word of God here this morning, and we ask for your faithfulness to bless our time of study, pray for your grace to shine forth, Father, and provide... Uh, uh, clear speaking and clear thinking. Uh, I don't think there's a migraine coming on, but sometimes I get surprised. So, Father, thank you for being faithful. I do pray for, um, really, the perspective that this verse uh, teaches, that we can understand the appropriate balance between uh, fatalism, where we just surrender everything to your sovereignty, and uh, and then uh, the other end of the spectrum, Father. We want to make full application in every way because we are accountable. You have caused us to be uh, volitional and we have capacity to make choices and we reap what we sow and uh, you will not be mocked. We understand that. So bless our time of study today, Father. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is main point 10 with its three subpoints that we introduced a week ago. Proverbs 16 closes with three timeless truths. And I'm sure you would have told me if that wasn't up there, so we're good. All right. Point 10 in the outline, Proverbs 16 closes with three timeless truths. And uh, we just simply label them A, B, and C, going through verse 31, 32, and 33. And uh, celebrating the elderly last week, it was a lot of fun. A gray head is a crown of glory, it is found in the way of righteousness. And there is a joy and a delight, a lifetime of walking with the Lord and the blessings that come there is uh, really a treasure, and we can appreciate that looked at uh, the Proverbs and other passages that uh, correlate to that principle. Um, And of course, what doesn't correlate or the antithesis of this is a lifetime without the Word of God. Uh, That's sad. That's tragic. That just means gray hair and getting older and body falling apart, and you don't have the inner man being renewed day by day. If you think about it, we, uh, we rejoice in that promise that while the outer man perishes, the inner man is renewed day by day. 
unless of course you're carnal and you're not living in the word of God, in which case then uh, the outer man perishes and you're conformed to this fallen age. So uh, what a miserable experience that ends up being. The second timeless truth uh, centers on self-control from verse 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And so if you think about all of the, the legends of world history and the various people with the name the great attached to them or the conqueror or you know, the terrible, or you get different labels uh, attached to your name when you're famous historically. And, uh, but uh, where, is the, where are the legendary self-control uh, believers <laughs> that uh, it's just those aren't the things that the world will exalt and it's not the kind of uh, thing that uh, will put you in a in a hall of fame but it should be because uh, God tracks those things and it's better than the mighty he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city and so to this day thousands of years go by and we're still talking about you know, the Trojan horse. We're still talking about the fall of Troy. We're still talking about the fall of Tyre and, and other things, uh, the fall of Babylon, the city that couldn't be conquered in, until it was, you know. Um, and all the famous conquerors of a city And Proverbs says, no, he who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. And so there's a timeless truth there connected to our self-control. And then finally, the third and final timeless truth then Point C, there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as luck. Our random events are God's good pleasure to actualize. They are God's good pleasure to actualize. And so as it says here, the, um, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So if you're casting a lot, uh, or if you're, we would say today, if you're flipping a coin, all right, casting a lot, drawing straws. There's other mechanisms that humans have used over the years for just making a random choice, making a random choice. And so whoever gets stuck with a short straw, uh, if you draw the short one, then, then, you know, you're it. (laughs) Okay. And, and, but this is what we deal with, even from early childhood, even from, um, you know, the youngest of ages, how many children's games are centered on like tag or go seek or anything? Um, it's about a random chance of you've been selected. You drew the short straw, you, a straw, you got tagged, you're it. And, uh, and, and really that idea of randomness is built into uh, the human experience. And so it's not surprising then the Bible's going to talk about it, that the Word of God's going to have an application as it pertains to everything that's a part of the human experience. God's Word uh, provides for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so the lot is cast into the lap. You flip a coin. Is it heads or is it tails? Um, Which way is it going to land? And uh, if you think that it's random, if you think that nobody has control over it, think again. God is in charge. It's every decision is from the Lord. That means it flips heads every time he wants it to and it flips tails every time he wants it to. And uh, if you're rolling a die or or whatever it is, the, the number that gets rolled is the number God wants every time. And uh, this uh, should be an encouragement for us. So our random events are God's good pleasure to actualize. And keep that expression in your mind too, because when we approach these seemingly random things, little coincidences, little just happenstance, right? From our perspective, being finite beings, uh, to us it just seems like random, seems like luck that 
you know, nobody was in charge. It just happened. Accidents do happen. Stuff happens. Okay? But from God's perspective, God doesn't just wind up the universe and then let it go and then hope for the best or, or leave things out of his control that he has not sovereignly determined. Okay? So there's a balance to this, and we've got re- to recognize what that is. When does God sovereignly determine everything? Otherwise, what we have to guard against, though, is we don't want to become so totally deterministic that we become fatalistic, that we become uh, hyper-Calvinistic related to, well, God chooses everything. So then that means I don't have any choices. Not true. That's where you've crossed a line. That's where you've gone too far. Yes, God chooses everything. And God chooses everything in His wisdom, in His foreknowledge, in, his, in, his, in the, the glory of His plan, but his selections don't force your selections. See, you are still free to choose, and that's the balance. And if we can walk out of here today with this as an understanding, then we will be uh, very well equipped. Uh, there is another proverb as well, and I meant to put it on the slide. I think it's is it Proverbs uh, 18 or is it Proverbs 29? There's another proverb that goes with this. I've got a footnote in my Bible that says Proverbs 29, 26, but I don't think that's the one I was thinking of. Could be 18, 18. Yes, okay, the, the cast lot puts an end to strife and decides between the mighty ones. Okay, so that's another application that will come up. Now, a cast lot putting an end to strife, deciding between mighty ones, that's if they agree to it, right? <laughs> you know? If you get two heavyweight champions and they're standing there in the ring ready to duke it out and they decide, you know what, instead of pounding each other into pulp, let's just flip a coin and that'll determine who the heavyweight champion of the world is going to be. You know, Well, the two sides have to agree to that. And uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and then 29-26 might be another one. Let me see. Mm. No, that's not the one I'm thinking of. All right, Joshua 14. Let's turn to Joshua 14 and take a look because this is a principle and it's illustrated repeatedly. I'm going to have some subpoints for you as well. One, two, three, and four. So Joshua 14. And let's take a look at some of this. Are you familiar with this story? Joshua 14 and verse seven. Starts off here, what do I want to pick up? All right. Maybe that's not the one I wanted to look at. Oh my, okay. Well, my apologies. I thought this was the one I was looking at. There's no <laughs> there are no accidents. I intended a verse and God, uh, God had other plans. Huh. Okay. Well, let's just go on to the subpoints, and maybe we'll be done earlier than I thought. There was actually a story here, and... Um,
What'd you say, Christopher? 714? Did I transpose my numbers? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. 714. All right. Chapter 7, verses 14 and following. And we were talking about this at the house this morning, too. One of these days you're going to figure out that one of these days you're going to figure out that your pastor's retarded and you know make Christopher your pastor. All right. This is really a, a remarkable chapter. So after Jericho gets destroyed, the second city they went to attack was Ai, and they lose. They lose horribly at Ai, and the reason why is because of something that happened during the the sack of of Jericho. Jericho was to be totally destroyed, no plunder. Uh, everything it was devoted to destruction, and that's a, a particular uh, blessing that God provides, whereby it's it's like a whole burnt offering. Everything goes to God. You get nothing back. Uh, you don't get to eat any of the meat. The whole burnt offering is is being consumed and going to the Lord. Uh, this is the, the kind of a destruction of a city like this is similar to that in that you're not going to you're not going to gain anything from plundering this city. You're not going to get wealth or money or animals or, or anything. Uh, it is totally dedicated to destruction. And then, but this fellow uh, Achan, who uh, takes something, who sees a little silver cup and he steals it, that sin leads to the nation uh, having a consequence of losing the next battle, losing the next war. So one guy's disobedience affects an entire nation. All right? Shows you the, the seriousness of it and how a corporate body ought to be. Uh, involved with one another, like a congregation, ought to be involved with one another in uh, in serious issues, whereby one person's rebellion before the Lord can impact the whole congregation in uh, in that way. So um, they lose the battle, and then uh, the Lord says, "What are you complaining about?" <laughs> So uh, verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, rise up, why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded them. I love that because there's the sin and then there's transgressing the covenant. And those are, those are separate, they're, they're described there in separate ways. Okay? And so this is part of what we were trying to teach in Hebrews related to Jesus. The work that he did on the cross as it was related to sin was one thing, but then the, his work as it was related to Israel's transgressing the covenant is a separate issue. And he, he did, dealt with both uh, while he was on the cross. All right, so Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. And so claiming possession of this and blending it in with their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They uh, turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Remember, consequences for violation of covenant are curse. That's the thing. They, re- they rehearse the blessings and they rehearse the cursings. And for being in a broken covenant relationship, the, uh, the wage, we say the wages of sin is death. The wages of covenant violation is curse. All right? And so uh, Jesus, of course, did both. He died on the cross for our sins, but he also became a curse to redeem from under the law. All right. So here's the curse. And so you've got to remove the things. You've got to destroy the things that are under the ban. 
So rise up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus uh, the the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, these are the things under the ban in your midst. There are things under the ban in your midst. He knows it. He knows what's under the ban. He knows where it is. And, uh, and I love the fact that they're given a night's warning. This is like a confession opportunity. It's like an opportunity to come forward in an amnesty kind of way and say, okay, it's me, here it is. But no one does. Um, so tomorrow uh, it's going to get exposed. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. So verse 14, In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. So this is the process then. All of the, they, they gather around for a, a, an assembly, but they're lined up by tribes. Okay? And then the tribe that is taken, all the other tribes can go home. Okay? The tribe that's taken has to stay there, and then they have to come uh, and make a second presentation now by family. And then there's going to be a family that's taken. And all the other families can go home. And so this process here for casting lots, for drawing at random, okay? So you get 12 tribes of Israel and, and you know, this tribe gets the short straw. Now that seems random, right? But it's not. It's random as far as we're concerned. It's random as far as just a, a coincidence or a happenstance or a uh, just it just I mean, it just kind of happened, you know. Judas just happened to bump hands with Jesus in the in the dipping bowl there with with their bread. It just kind of happened, or was it sovereignty at work? Because God controls every happenstance, and so uh, the family, the tribe was selected. The other eleven tribes can go home. The family was selected. All those other families can go home. The family, of course, which we would think of as a clan because it's an extended group of families. Um, then the family has to come forward and come near by households. Now we're narrowing it down. And, you know, what are the odds? You know, what are the odds that God's going to get this right? 100%. Okay? Because it's not really odds when God's sovereignty is doing what God's sovereignty wants to do. And so um, the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. So now it's within the household and every member of that household, man by man, person by person, okay? Women too, you're not excluded here. And it shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. Notice, it's one single person. And a whole nation has suffered military defeat for one single person's rebellion at Jericho. And God knows who that person is. This is the precision God has. So, and keep in mind, not just the night before, Achan had a chance to come forward the night before, and he didn't. And then the next morning, his tribe was selected. Achan's got a chance to step forward now. Go to his tribal prince, right? And say, hey, it's me. Our tribe's in trouble here. <laughs> okay? And then his tribal prince can then take him before the Lord and disavow him and put him under discipline because that's what a tribe should be doing. But Achan stays silent. He was in that crowd when the tribe was taken. And when the other 11 tribes are sent home, he's there. And then his clan, and he's in that crowd. And then the household, okay? 
It's closing in, and he's got to know. Man by man is coming before the Lord. So it should be that the one who is taken with the things under the ban shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. And so this is how it's described and this is what happens. And so Joshua rose early in the morning. He brings uh, the tribe of Judah is taken. And then uh, the family of Judah and it's the uh, family of the Zerahites that's taken. So there's the clan of the Zerahites. And then the uh, Zerahites are brought by and Zadi, Zabdi, or I'm sorry, Zabdi was taken. And so the household of Zabdi comes by and here's Achan. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken. And uh, this, is, this is a good illustration. This helps you understand tribes and clans and families and households. All right. And so Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. This was in a study last week when we were talking about give glory to God. Uh, the uh, Pharisees wanted the man born blind to give glory to God and admit the sin that you know, that uh, Jesus was a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath or whatever. Give glory to God. And here's uh, another use of it. Give glory to God. Give praise to Him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And, and you know, the whole nation has been narrowed down to one person, and he knows he's guilty. <laughs> he knows he's guilty. The Lord knows he's guilty. Joshua knows he's guilty. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. And so at this point, you know, is it really a 1 John 1, 9 kind of confession if, if you've been found out and you're being forced to it? To, no, it's an admission. Okay? Confession time would have been last night when they were told that this was going to happen the next day or at some stage along the way as, as it was closing in. But he went all the way to the end when it was narrowed down to him and him alone. So he owns up to it. And uh, this is not a 1 John 1, 9 confession. This is an admission and a a conviction because he's going to be put to death. Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was concealed in his tent with a silver underneath it. And uh, and so there it is. All right, so it seems like random events. It's God's good pleasure to actualize. There is a uh, an interesting article in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on Esther, Esther three seven. Um, so some point one then uh, see the ba- the uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary on Esther three seven for the random casting of lots with God's sovereign control. And if you're familiar with the story of Esther, one of the little details in there that gets overlooked is the fact. Let's look at Esther three seven, the book of Esther. And this is where King Haman plans, or not King Haman, but Haman, the uh, uh, officer of the king, he uh, he wants to exterminate the Jewish people. But the Persians are so um, superstitious, and everything they do has to be done with uh, consulting the gods and surrendering to the sovereignty of the gods. And so they cast lots, and a Persian lot is called Pur. And so uh, in verse 7, in the first month, which is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, 
per, that is the lot, was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And so that's the month that he has to select for the execution of the Jewish people. So then Haman says to the king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of other people and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. This is an alien people and uh, you don't want an alien people in your land if they're not going to respect your laws. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they will be destroyed. And uh, so this is, this is genocide. This is the extermination of a people group because uh, they're in your land and you don't want them there. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Tremendous blood price for this. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and the enemy of the Jews. And so the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also do to do with them as you please. So anyway, then uh, we learn about this. So the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. It was written just as Haman commanded the king's satraps to the governors who were over each province. I think this is the longest verse in the Bible, isn't it? one of these is uh, where the decree went out to uh, all the people and all their language and all their satraps and so forth. Anyway, there. this is the story. And I don't want to get lost in this because I want to wrap up Proverbs 16 this morning. Uh, there is an excellent commentary here on this event. The author included a seemingly obscure part of the account by recording that Haman used a purr which is why the, the holiday they observe today is called Purim. It's the remembrance of their deliverance in the, in the days of Esther. Uh, a Babylonian word for the lot, to decide when the Jews should be killed. The original readers of the book would have understood that God was working to protect his people even in the timing of events. As things worked out, the Jews had almost a year in which to prepare themselves for the conflict with their enemies. And it goes on to detail this. A little more than four years had gone by since Esther had become queen in 478 B.C. On the first day of the year in Nisan, that would be April or May of 474 B.C., at the beginning of Xerxes' twelfth year, the purr was cast to select a day and a month. So you're rolling random months. You know, which month do I get? Ah, I'm going to get the the month of uh, of that. And then, okay, and then what day? Then, so you're just rolling at random to determine this. Presumably the day selected was when the execution of the Jews was to begin. Haman, along with many peoples in the Persian Empire, was extremely superstitious. You can see a clue to that in chapter 6 and verse 13. The Persian religious system stressed fate and chance. They were, they were central hallmarks to the, to the whole Persian religion. Haman was allowing fate by the casting of the lot to dictate his move against the Jewish nation. Little did he then realize that the God who created all things and controls all events was in control of that situation. The lot casting. And it quotes Proverbs 16.33, our verse this morning. God had already prepared a means of delivering his people from Haman's plot. The month chosen by Lot was the twelfth month, almost a year later. The day uh, was the thirteenth of the month. And so God's, uh, God's sovereignty was at work. And remember, the, um, the laws can't be changed once they're, 
once they're passed. The laws of the Persians can't be changed. And so he, the king can't learn about this and say, well, I changed my mind, it's, it's over. So then he has to create a new law that says, all right, the Jews can defend themselves. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a, I like the book of Esther. It's a good uh, story. Anyway, 10,000 talents of silver weighed about 750,000 pounds, an enormous amount worth millions of dollars in present-day currency. A staggering sum Haman was willing to pay <laughs> Must have made the king suspicious. Surely he could not have acquired so much money without being crooked. Anyway. There's more on that, and uh, I enjoyed that. All right. So is it random? Well, from our perspective, it seems like it. But God's in charge, and that's the best thing. By the way, I think every pagan culture in the ancient world was just as superstitious as as the Persians. The Romans maybe were the most famous of all. They wouldn't go to war until they drew the the auspices. They had to they had to you know read the entrails of a goose to see if if <laughs> you know, and and then uh, it also kind of became political too because you could pay off the Pontifex Maximus. He could uh, he could claim that he saw a, a bad. Uh, auspice and, and say, no, the auguries aren't correct, we, we can't go to war. And really he was just collecting money under the table for uh, ruling that way. Um, so God's in charge and we can be thankful for that. There's also a um, neat commentary on Genesis 24-44. Uh, let's go to Genesis 24. This random girl that came to the well, you know, Abraham needs a wife for Isaac, and uh, he, he sends his servant to, uh, to Paddan Haram to go get a wife from among the extended clan of, uh, of Abraham. That way uh, Isaac isn't going to marry one of those horrible Canaanite girls. Um, but he will have uh, a, a wife from among the extended clan of Abraham's family in Paddan Haram. And it seems awkward. I mean, when, when we read this chapter, you know, I've got adult children. I, I want them to find a spouse that's in the will of God. Uh, this is not the mechanism I would employ. None of us would. Okay? And, and it seems out of sorts to our modern way of thinking, and yet it was very much compatible with faith in, in the ancient world with faith in the God who controls circumstances. And so um, it just seems as he's approaching here, the servant in these early verses, I know it says 44 on the screen, but um, the servant has vowed to Abraham he's going to come back with a wife. And uh, so he takes 10 camels in verse 10 from the camels of his master, set out with a variety of good things of his master in his hand, arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Now notice this is his prayer. And he is leaving it in the hands of God. We can, we can apply this in, uh, in our own way. O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. So it's evening time. The sun's going down. It's a brand new day. Remember they counted from sundown to sundown. And so this is the day now. 
before the sun goes down the following day, he's going to have a wife picked out for, for Isaac. Show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. This is what they do. Now may it be, may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink and I will water your camels also, may she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Now this, um, this seems presumptuous, this seems gimmicky, this seems wrong, this seems on, on, on a lot of levels, um, we, we would have a note of, we have several notes of caution here, but as a pattern, this is not a bad process to pursue in terms of divine guidance. And I'll, I'll explain this. This is because when we, this, what this is, is this is a human being that is a finite creature that's, 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 that recognizes that we deal with random chances all the time, but he's going to the Father in prayer for whom there are no random chances. And so what we think is a coincidence, if we accept it as God's sovereignty, as God's divine appointment, then that's our divine appointment. See? And you can, if you're in the custom, and we get the idea, this, is, this servant lives like this all day every day. This is not unusual for him. There's a reason why Abraham selected this guy and not somebody else to go get a wife. This guy is the one that was sent because this is the guy that walks by faith moment by moment, day by day. This is the guy that surrenders everything to the will of God. And so he throws it out there. And I've read commentaries where they mock it. They say, well, this is like Gideon with the fleece and whatever. He's on a mission. And he's serving Abraham and he's serving God. And God made a promise that the seed of Abraham is, is going to bless the world. So for this servant, he's taking this duty pretty seriously. If he fails here, we don't get saved, right? I mean, the, the seed of the woman promise comes through Isaac and Isaac needs a wife. All right. So may it be, may it be, he's requesting the father to sovereignly control the circumstances. And so then he's leaving it with a father. Because this servant, he doesn't control which girl comes out first. He doesn't control which girl offers to water the camels also. He has no control over that at all, but God's got total control over all of that. So the fact that God selects Rebecca and doesn't select, you know, some unbeliever or some loser or someone that's, you understand, it's got to be the right woman for Isaac that, that God has selected here. So, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. I mean, he's still wrapping up the end of his prayer. And she's the first one out the gate. Well, lucky for Isaac. <laughs> okay, lucky for Isaac. And so the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had relations with her. She went out into the spring and filled her jar and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. What are the odds of that? Wow, lucky for Isaac. Lucky for Isaac. All right. Now, 
Are you familiar with the treasury of scripture knowledge? It's a marvelous tool, and I recommend it. Let me close this. R.A. Torrey originally did the first one. It's been revised a couple times, but um, the treasury of scripture knowledge. It's like, you know the little cross-references you have in the margins of your Bible? You get one or two in a verse, or two or three in a verse. It's like that times a thousand, times a billion. I mean, it's, it's a huge, it's, it's half a million cross-references from every passage of the Bible. It's just... It's, uh, it's amazing. And Tori was such a... Uh, to have a whole council understanding of the Word of God to create these cross-references like this for almost every word, for almost every you know, phrase, shall we say, of every verse of the Bible. Um, and then occasionally there will be these editorial essays. In, uh, and this is one such. So Genesis twenty four forty three. So... Um, the cross-references, by the way, are connected to a verse uh, or to a word or to a phrase. Anyway, so they've got cross-references here from Genesis to Isaiah to 1 Timothy. I'm going to get past those. Just to the, uh, to the narrative uh, description of what they have here, the idea of luck. These events which appear to us the effect of choice, contrivance, or chance are matters of appointment with God. And then uh, they cross-reference Proverbs 16.33, also Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The persuasion of this does not prevent, but rather encourage the use of all proper means at the same time that it confines us to proper means and delivers the mind from useless anxiety about consequences. Boy, I've got to say that again. The, uh, the persuasion of this does not prevent, but rather encourage the use of all proper means. So don't become a total slave of fatalism and say, well, God's sovereignty will make whatever he wants to happen so I don't have to go get fetch a wife. I don't have to go to heaven. I can just sit here, right? It's like the critics, the Calvinists that told Carey not to go to India. They said William Carey, he, was, he wanted to be a missionary, he wanted to go to India, he wanted to give the gospel to a pagan land. And they said, if God wants those pagans saved, God will get those pagans saved. You don't have to go. And William Carey said, well, I believe God's sovereign, but I believe I'm, he's calling me to go. <laughs> and he went. You, you, you don't use sovereignty as an excuse to do nothing. At the same time, it encourages the use of all proper means and, this, and confining us to proper means and delivers the mind from useless anxiety about consequences. Useless anxiety about consequences. This is why we pray, not our will, but thine be done. This is why you pray ahead of time and say, Father, I believe that uh, you would have for me to do this, and uh, this is the course I'm taking. We did this when we bought this church property. We believe that this is the, the, the plot you want us to own. We, at first we thought it was going to be up on Dessau by that elementary school, and we said, Lord, we, we want to put an offer on that property. And if that's not your will, then close that door. And, we'll, and, and, so, and we were delighted. Every time God shut a door, we said, thank you, Father. That way we don't have useless anxiety about the consequences. Ooh, did we make the right choice? We made the choice he directed us to make. And so it came to this property. Are we going to buy this property? Lord, if this is not your will, 
You can shut it down. You can keep the bank from approving our loan. You can, there's any number of things. And so there's no useless anxiety about consequences. When, when she says these words, do you think he's uh, second-guessing himself now and thinking, ooh, maybe is this, is this really the right girl? I hope she's pretty enough. Yeah, no, there's no second-guessing anything. She said the very words that he asked the Lord to, uh, to be his indicator. All right. Arthur Carr, in the opening sentence of an intriguing essay called The Exclusion of Chance from the Bible, states that there is perhaps no point, and I I need to get that essay, there there is perhaps no point more impressively dwelt upon by the Hebrew prophets in their interpretation of history or of human life than the exclusion of chance as an element to be taken into account. Carr states further that the pervading prophetical interpretation of history and of men's lives is that events are ordered and determined by the divine will and not by luck or chance or happy accident. It is remarkable that neither tuki nor any other word signifying luck or chance or accident occurs in the New Testament. We meet with the same phenomenon in the Old Testament. Thus the biblical worldview or philosophy of sacred history identifies purpose and result in the Hebrew mind and leaves no place for chance or fortune in any theory of life or in religious terms. And then you got more cross-references there to look at. Anyway, I enjoyed that. And it was not only was it a useful quote, but then it also sent me to another quote. Uh, now I want to find Carr and I want to find his um, essay which I have not yet been successful in doing. I will, though. I will track it down, if God so directs. (laughs) All right. That's my purpose. Human viewpoint may surrender to happenstance, but divine viewpoint knows better. Human viewpoint may surrender to happenstance, but divine viewpoint knows better. Ecclesiastes 9.11. Ecclesiastes is our book of human viewpoint. And if you're not living in the Word of God, if your thinking isn't transformed by the Word of God, then uh, you're living the Ecclesiastes lifestyle. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All right, Ecclesiastes 9.11. Verse 10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Again, I, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn based on this verse. And yet her hymn is much more divine viewpoint centered than this verse. This verse is human viewpoint centered. The uh, race is not to the swift, battle is not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Fanny Crosby was wise enough to leave off the second part of that verse. It doesn't belong in a hymn. The first half of the verse, with divine viewpoint, with a perspective that God is in charge, not time, not chance. You know? But if all you have is human viewpoint, you think, well, time catches up to all of us. We're all all getting old. We're all, you know, in chance. You can't control. If it happens, it happens. What a slave to circumstances. And yet, our culture is, you know people, I know people, they're just drifting from 
thing to thing to thing and they view themselves as victims. Oh, this bad thing happened. Oh, that bad thing happened. Oh, you know, I wish I could do this. I wish I could serve the Lord, but, you know, I've got all these excuses because it's just life dealt me a bad hand. Well, you play the cards you were dealt, but they're the cards God wanted you to have. We're not, uh, we're not victims to our circumstances. Divine viewpoint knows better. The Bible is full of lucky stories. The Bible is full of lucky stories. And uh, there's just three of them, and, and there's more. You can find more, I'm sure. The Bible is full of lucky stories. So we'll read these and then we'll be done. But just th- I-, I want us to have the balance. I don't want us to become so hyper-Calvinistic that we just, everything is sovereignty and, and then we're accountable for nothing. Right? That's not wrong. We're accountable for every choice we make. We're not privy to God's choices, so we're accountable for the choices we make. And yes, God is accomplishing His good pleasure with every choice we make, but we're still accountable for every choice we make. And I hope we understand that both are true. His sovereignty, He determines everything, but we still make choices. And so we reap what we sow. That is so important. That's so critical. All right, here's the lucky choice of uh, Moses, who just happened to, uh, you know, when you're floating down a river in a basket and you're uh, six weeks old, you're not really in control of anything. You're certainly not in, in charge of who fishes you out and adopts you. So this is pretty lucky. And um, it happened, just coincidentally happens to be the daughter of Pharaoh. And she just happened to be there having her bath at that time, on that day, with her maidens. Happens to spot the basket among the reeds. Evidently it got kind of stuck at a certain spot. Well, that's luck. Sent her maid, she brought it to her. She opened it, saw a child, behold, the boy was crying. She had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. And it may be that on any other day, she wouldn't have had that kind of pity, but it just, it was the right girl at the right time, at the right mood, the right emotions, the right whatever, you know, God's in charge of all of that. The right hormone balance, I mean, whatever, you know. (laughs) And, hmm, this is one of the Hebrew women, one of the babies. So, um, so his sister said to Pharaoh, how did she happen to be there? You know, she was following along and seeing what happened. And uh, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may be nurse the child for? You're going to need a wet nurse because, you know, you're not lactating. Um, This baby needs breast milk. And so, ooh, that's lucky. Hey, you know what? I'll go find a midwife. I'll go find a lactating Hebrew woman. How about that? And it just happens to be his real mom. Well, that's coincidence. So um, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. And so here comes Jochebed. All right. Anyway, it's a great story. Um, Lucky stories. How about Ruth? Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. Ruth chapter 2. So we know the story of Ruth. There's a famine and uh, these brothers and their wives and their mother are going to leave. There's a famine. The dad dies. And uh, 
They're going to leave. When it comes time to come back, um, so Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Ruth and the Moabites said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she departed, went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. What are the odds of that? She just happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Who is the family? Well, goodness gracious. Lucky it turned out that way, huh? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, you know, so it's, so he's there at that time. He spots her. Who is this? All these lucky stories. How about First Kings? This is one of my favorites. First Kings 22. <laughs> oh, I'm running out of time. First Kings 22, 34. And for this, you've got to read the whole chapter. Okay, but we won't. But two kings are going to war. Okay? It's like when you and the neighbor kid, you say, hey, you want to go throw rocks down the creek? Yeah, let's go throw rocks down the creek. Sounds fun. But if you're a king and then your buddy king, next door neighbor king says, hey, you want to go to war with Paddan Haram? Yeah, okay, let's go to war. And so they, they get ready to go to war. And then one of the kings says, tell you what, you go ahead and stay in your king outfit and ride in your king chariot in your king outfit. And I'm going to put on this, this disguise. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's going to go in disguise. And um, this is the great idea here. So in verse 29, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. I kind of think Jehoshaphat was a little dim. But maybe maybe the Lord spoke to him and said, you know, go along with whatever dumb idea that that uh, Ahab comes up with. So the king of Aram had commanded 32 captains of the chariots saying, do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. He was targeted. Aim all your arrows at the king. So it seems like uh, Jehoshaphat's doomed, right? It seems like the king of Israel, who's in disguise, who doesn't look like a king, uh, has it made. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely this is the king of Israel. They turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. When the captains of the chariots saw it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. Well, that was a lucky shot. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. So a random arrow from a random soldier hits a random nobody dressed like, a, you know, disguised as a, just a basic buck private. And it just happens to hit, and he's all armored up, and it just happens to pierce in that little joint of the armor where it can pierce through and form a mortal wound. Wow. What a lucky shot. What a lucky shot. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. And, uh, we view things as good luck or bad luck or just accidents. That's because we're finite. We're so limited. Uh, open our eyes to see bigger pictures. Open our eyes to celebrate that uh, even 
bad luck is your sovereignty at work as all things work together for good. And so, Father, we run with endurance the race that's set before us. We don't necessarily like each each segment of that race. There's unpleasant parts to that race. And yet uh, the end is glory, Father, and your Son is worthy. So we, uh, we accept your will in all things. And uh, just thank you for your faithfulness, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.